Hello, my name is Sam Chandra, and this is Deep Sky. On this podcast, we go into conversation, helping you to navigate the collision of artificial intelligence and aviation. I am an airline captain, a student of artificial intelligence, and your guide to navigating the collision of artificial intelligence and aviation. On this episode of Deep Sky, we look at something slightly different. As artificial intelligence slowly advances, Experimental aircraft are becoming exponentially more capable in their ability to perceive their environment and, in turn, fly the plane. The other side of enabling semi or fully autonomous aircraft is that less pilots may be needed in the cockpits of the world's airliners. Today we explore what it is like to lose your job as a pilot, and for that we are in conversation with Nick Copeland. Nick ceased flying in March of 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic first swept the world. As at the time of recording in May of 2021, he was still yet to step back into a cockpit. Before COVID, he was the technical pilot for the Boeing fleet at Jetstar Australia and a 787 first officer. Our conversation explores the mental and emotional journey that starts when you are told you can't fly anymore. We look at some of the challenges along the way and briefly discuss the future of pilotless aircraft. We are both Australian, so I will briefly explain a couple of the terms used by us. Uni just means university, EBA means Enterprise Bargaining Agreement, and is just the contract between a pilot and the airline, and ANZ is the Australia New Zealand Bank. This is Deep Sky. Hi Nick, thanks very much for coming onto the podcast. Could you take us back to the start of your career after high school, the university that you did, the course that you did and why? And then how did you transition into flying? Yeah, so after school, I got into commerce and engineering, double degree, mainly because I didn't get into medicine. I just picked the next thing on the list that I thought I'd be interested in. I was always interested in engineering, physics and maths, and I picked commerce. I had no idea what a commerce degree involved, but I thought I'll find out soon enough if I start studying it. So that's that's how I got into commerce and engineering. So I did that at uni for a few years and decided I loved the mathematics aspect to it. Went to work for a bank, went to work for ANZ after uni in various sort of analytics departments. You went to ANZ. What was your job there? I got into a risk management grad program there and initially I was in credit risk doing assessing and building the mathematical models that uh, determine what your probability of default is. Now okay. under the, it wasn't called machine learning at the time, but that's uh, what we were doing is now falls under the banner of machine learning. Because you weren't actually using machine learning at the time, but now you're using it to do the same thing. Well, yeah, it was, like I said, it wasn't called that, but we were building uh, mathematical models that were trained on a particular historical data set used to predict a certain outcome with a future data set. Even okay. though those weren't the words that were used at the time, it now falls under the banner of, I suppose, ML. Yeah, that pretty much is machine learning these days. Okay. And yeah, so yeah. how would you rate the passion levels for that job? I'd rate it in, in sort of two categories. So I, I like the, the mathematics and the actual technical aspect of what I was doing. I like the programming involved in extracting and transforming data. I like the mathematics that turn that data into some sort of meaningful decision in terms of the reason I was doing it, which was for, for the bank. It, it never really ignited my passion levels like when I was uh, reading about all things to do with aeroplanes. And that's, I guess, how I decided one day that because I would spend my free time researching aviation and aeroplanes in general. Mm. It just one day it snapped in me. It's, ah, that's what I should be doing. 
if I'm happy to do it for free, then that's what I should be doing with my life. And yeah, that's how it all came about. That was the day I decided that aviation was the path I needed to go down. Right. Could you take us through the story of that transition into a completely new career? When you know nothing about aviation, you have to find out somehow. So you jump mm. on the internet and look what's involved. And it looked reasonably difficult <laughs> to, to get into, not just to do the training, because that looks incredibly expensive as a first, first thing, and time-consuming, so difficult to do while you're working. But then finding a job once you've done it all, also difficult. So I thought, oh, the best way to find out about all of this is just to jump straight into it. So I went and uh, did a couple of flying lessons at uh, Moorabbin and thought, yeah, this is, uh, this is what I'll do. Perhaps naively and with a bit of denial about the difficulties ahead, I thought, no, nah, it'll be all right. Mm. I'll do it. So I just started doing flying lessons while I was still working at ANZ, using that to pay for my flying lessons. And then as it happens, that's the uh, right place at the right time. That's when Jetstar launched their cadet program and had the perfect amount of experience, just enough to show that I was interested and dedicated to the profession and not too much that they couldn't treat me as a blank canvas in terms of their training. Yeah, I got into that and a couple of years later started flying with Jetstar. How do you think that cadet program had an effect on your entry into the workforce? How do you think that was different to perhaps if you hadn't found a cadetship? Yeah, it's it's difficult to know. I was fully prepared to go through general aviation and get whatever job I could once I had a commercial license that I was fully prepared for that because the cadet program didn't exist when I decided to go down that path. But the fact that I got into it, it changed everything all of a sudden, even though the job was never guaranteed at the end of the program. The employment prospects at the time were such that we were always going to get hired because there was quite a demand for pilots back then, approximately 10 years ago. Mm. So I did the program with Nick and uh, we both finished at the same time and we finished what, 20, 2012 is when we finally finished up. And Nick and I have both been working for Jetstar Group for the last nine years and Nick has been in Australia that whole time. Could you just outline your career since you started at the airline? Yeah, so we started, like you say, 2012, the first six or so months was line training and then straight into line operations on the A320 and the A321, mostly domestic network, a bit of international into New Zealand and uh, Southeast Asia, so a bit of Bali and Singapore as first officers, I should say. And yeah, for our group, that was largely it for the last 10 years. I did get the opportunity about three years ago to get onto the 787 in the more international network. And some of the other guys took commands three or four years ago uh, in various bases around Australia. In terms of career progression within an airline, I think it's been incredibly fast by comparison to some of the other legacy carriers. For myself, I took a slightly different route to the people I did a bit of management work. So I got into the role of the Airbus technical pilot about five or six years ago, which is something I was always interested in given uh, my technical background. And similarly, once I got onto the 787, I did a similar role on the Boeing fleet, which was, uh, yeah, very interesting. So that involved about half half of my time working in the office or remotely, but in administrative capacity and then half the time flying out on the line. Okay. And do you think that tickled your interest in analytics and engineering and uh, what you enjoyed about your previous job? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of the role of technical pilot, we'd be constantly uh, liaising with the engineering departments in terms of modifications to the aircraft, hardware and software, and looking at 
exactly what that what consequences that would have to the pilot group and analyzing flight safety data and technical data from the engines and performance data from the airframe. It's stuff that I could really get stuck into with my technical background. So it's great. Today we're exploring the other side of artificial intelligence in aviation, which is what happens when you do automate an aircraft. And guess what happens? You may or may not lose a crew member on the aircraft and that might be a pilot. So as any pilot would know 2020 was really difficult for the industry and that was no different for Nick. He went through a process of not being able to fly and actually is still currently in that situation since March of 2020. So Nick, could you just tell us, really paint a picture for us, what happened first and then we can move on to what that actually felt like, but what happened? Yesterday I went back through my emails to have a look at the chronology of how it all played out and what was remarkable to me was how quickly it all happened how quickly it went from Mm. nothing's wrong ops normal to the entire world shutting down and it was literally over the space of three weeks so i was on the 787 we were flying a lot of southeast asia etc and late february early march there was a, a hint that there was something going on in another part of the world, but you didn't really pay much attention to it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's just another SARS happening in China or something like that. And even though when we flew into Bali and uh, Bangkok and places like that, you got a feeling that the streets were a bit quieter, but you thought, oh, yeah, it's just the, I suppose, the lack of Chinese tourists because of that virus they've got. And I suppose, like most people, I didn't think too much more of it. That was early March. It was around the 12th or 13th of March, so a week later that, the US shut their border to Europe. I remember that exact day. Yeah, over in our little pocket of the world in Australia, we thought, oh, yeah, that sounds a bit drastic, but seems like ops normal over here. And as naive as that was, and it was a week later, the world shut down. And in Qantas Group, we all got the email from the CEO saying um, that three quarters of us would be stood down due to the evaporation of airline demand. And My last flight was 26th of March. I brought an aircraft back into Australia and 1st of April I was stood down and have been ever since. Yeah, that's how it played out for me as it did for most of the the pilots in the Qantas group and indeed the other airlines in Australia. So being stood down is essentially being said, we're not going to pay you because there's no work. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. There was no possibility of flying internationally because the borders were closed both in and out of Australia. And then, as we know, the the state border shut as well. So there was um, very little domestic travel that could go on. So very little need for passenger aircraft at that point. So consequently, very little need for pilots. And you're saying it was a process of three weeks. How long between they sent out that email saying three quarters will be stood down and you actually being stood down? It was about two weeks, I think, from memory. No, not, not long. It all happened very rapidly. And you're saying it was about three weeks between the oh, this is actually not just a SARS, but it might just be a SARS, mm. to mm. No, no one having a job in the whole company. Yeah, essentially, yeah. That's, that is incredibly rapid. So how did they stand you down? What does that mean? And how is that different to being made redundant? Yeah, so it all depends on what your contract says, what your ABA says with your particular company. But effectively, airlines have been around for a long time and they go through these peaks and um, and deep troughs like this. 
So most airlines will have some sort of provision where they can stand you down without pay when there isn't useful work for you. But it's typically used where they the company knows that it's going to be a temporary shortage of work and that you they ultimately are going to need you back. So they use the provision of standing you down. So you're effectively just put on, not even leave without pay. You're, you're just, you're told not to attend work. You don't get paid your usual wage, but for all intents and purposes, you're still employed by that airline, as opposed to being made redundant where your role is permanently no longer needed, where they have right. no intention of re-employing you or getting you back and having useful work for you in that role. So in some ways... It could have been worse. Yeah, it could have been much worse. And if you look at what happened to Tiger and and some of the people at at Virgin, yeah, I I guess I consider myself personally very fortunate that even though I am still stood down 15 months later, there are certainly worse positions you could be in. So could you take us through what happened next? You, You have this email saying you will be stood down. Then you got this email saying you are stood down. What were your thoughts, your feelings, your actions um, your reactions. What was your fight mode? What was your flight mode? You hear about these, however many stages of uh, processing a traumatic event, and you always think that it's something that happens to someone else, not you. And when you're in the eye of the storm, you don't realise that you're actually going through all those those emotions. But now, looking back on it in retrospect, I see how clearly I progressed through them. So, <laughs> at first, there was a disbelief, denial that stood down first of April, I thought, oh, I've got some annual leave I can cash out. And you know, the government are going to throw a bit of money our way in the form of JobKeeper or whatever it was at the time. I've got some work I can do around the house. This is good, a bit of forced time off. No worries. In a couple of months, everything will be back to normal and we'll have a good story to tell. So that denial, <laughs> disbelief and naivety initially, and then and then that sort of rapidly turns to to anger after a few months. Particularly as a man, you don't typically process your emotions very well. And I was no exception, especially in Melbourne, where we we were going through our second lockdown, which we, Mm. one of the strictest in the world that lasted for 15 weeks. So there was a lot to, there was a lot to direct your anger at during that lockdown. And you were effectively processing your grief, but you were directing it as anger. This Mm. is two, three, four months after I'd been stood down. I think the reality of actually getting back to the job you love started getting pushed further and further into the future and mm. the reality of thinking that it there's a possibility that it may never come back started to sink in and naturally you get angry at that because it's this thing that's completely outside of your control has ruined something that you worked so hard for and there's mm. absolutely nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do is control your response. But of course, initially, you don't control your response very well. So you get angry about it. You get angry about everything. And then finally, when the anger subsides, you realize that it's profoundly upsetting when yeah. you have nothing left to be angry at and you come to the realization that this is this is going to be here for a long time. It really sinks in and it upsets you greatly. And then that's when you reach the bottom and you have to start deciding how are you going to rebuild yourself in terms of possibly living without aviation, that thing that you identified Mm. with for so long that was everything to you is now taken away from you and maybe for good. How are you going to rebuild yourself and turn yourself into something, a functioning human being again without aviation? So I think that's uh, that's how it all played out. And I'd like to say I have the answers, but I don't. 
I guess I'm still on the up upward curve of that of that trough. For me personally, like I say, I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in that there is a possibility of going back to flying very shortly. So I think that very much helps with that upward curve of uh, getting yourself out of it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd be having a different conversation if I had been made redundant, then it'd be a different way I'd have to rebuild myself. I really like the way you framed all of that in the different stages of processing what is going on. It's very rare to find a pilot because we tend to be a a certain type of person that can actually Mm. think uh, and, and explain it that way. But I think lots of us are learning to look at it in a different way now. So did you apply for other jobs? How did you manage that? Yeah, for the first couple of months, I cashed out some annual leave and I thought uh, financially that that worked for a couple of months and I had some things to do, but ultimately I had to get another job, whatever that may be. And I thought initially naively and still in that sense of disbelief, I thought with my previous qualifications in commerce and engineering, my experience in the bank, and now my experience in airline operations, I I naturally thought I'll be a shoe into any number of jobs, no problem. So I'll just jump on seek and take my pick. And boy, did the world have a lesson for me. (laughs) I applied for probably over 50 jobs at least, and every one of them was very time consuming because... Required a dedicated cover letter, dedicated tailored CV. Mm-hmm. I applied for jobs that I was overqualified for. That, I, in my mind, I applied for jobs that I was perfectly qualified for. I even applied for ones I was underqualified for. And radio silence. I would get absolutely nothing back. A handful of them, I would get a rejection email, but on the whole, wouldn't even get that. So it was an enormous dose of reality to think, to come to the realization that you're not as employable as you think, or maybe you are, but Mm. there are 200 other people that are more employable. And that was a very bitter pill for me personally to swallow, but I had to find a job somehow. One of the great things about all of this is that you end up talking to your friends a lot and a lot more than you may have otherwise. And so I was talking to one of my um, other pilot colleagues and he said, I've got a, you know, one month contract assembling ventilators at a lab in eastern suburbs of Melbourne and they're looking for technicians to assemble ventilators because of this respiratory illness crisis and I said oh that Mm. sounds like a very worthwhile thing to do so I went and did that for a month and which was uh, yeah very interesting and something I'd never done before but it certainly wasn't particularly challenging in cerebral sense and it wasn't a long-term solution given it was only for a month so I had to find something else and this whole time I was applying for other work and still getting the radio silence. I thought maybe time to attempt to fall back on some of the relationships I'd formed in the past at ANZ. So I started just basically ringing around and talking to Mm. some of my ex-colleagues, getting in touch on LinkedIn and on Facebook and seeing what they were up to and just effectively trying to get some advice on where I could go and what I could do to apply for a job Mm. to increase my chances. And so that's how I ended up getting in touch with a previous colleague who I had worked with and asking if there are any opportunities back within ANZ. And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there are. Why don't you apply for this role or this role? And I think you'd be well suited to them. So I did. And because I had that personal connection, that Mm. that was the foot in the door that I needed. Uh, and I was very fortunately successful in one of those roles. So I started with ANZ late last year and have been with them 
ever since. So yeah, that got me back into the workforce. And certainly, apart from the financial necessity of having work, it certainly helps your mental health to have that mm. that occupation to keep your mind active. And so yeah, I feel very grateful that I'm in the position that I'm in. Interesting journey. You mentioned that you regarded yourself as well qualified. And I think society generally regards pilots as reasonably intelligent people who are well qualified. But it turns out that we're highly qualified in an incredibly narrow field. That's the experience that I have had. How how did it feel for you waking up to that reality that I thought I had all this to give the world, but the world doesn't want it? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. And I've seen this um, posted a lot on places like LinkedIn that pilots necessarily have very highly skilled in certain areas and those some of those skills are transferable, which is certainly true. We're incredibly knowledgeable in a very... Um, specific area which is aviation which essentially is difficult if not impossible to apply that knowledge set outside of aviation because it's so specific but in terms of some of the non-technical skills the management and the decision making those are certainly skills that can be applied outside of aviation the problem is it's very difficult to demonstrate to someone outside of aviation that you have those skills because there's no way of you effectively demonstrating them to an external employer. If it's a bank, for instance, and someone's never sat in a in the flight deck of an A320 and they're interviewing two people and one of them has been a manager at a similar financial institution before, then they can demonstrate management skills and decision-making skills in a similar context to that particular hiring manager. Whereas when you read the CV of a pilot, it's very difficult for someone to put themselves in your shoes because they just don't know. And I think that's part of it that, you know, even though you have these skills, it's, it's difficult to demonstrate your value to someone outside of aviation, which is unfortunately the position a lot of pilots found themselves in. Did it impact the value that you gave yourself? Yeah, it's impossible not to when you get so many rejections to think that, you're not as good or as valuable as you thought you are. Whether or not that's true or not, it's it's how you feel. Yeah, again, a bit of pill to swallow. And like I say, to have that personal connection with someone from your past where you did demonstrate those skills so they know mm. that you've got them, that was everything. That bridged the gap for me mm. personally. And it just goes to show how important those uh, relationships are. So you said that you got your new job in December last year and you're still stood down. How would you describe the relationship between you and this entity Jetstar throughout the last 15 months? Well, I suppose it's uh, it's difficult to compare to any other situation I've ever been in because no one's ever been in this situation before. Even people that have been in aviation for 30 or 40 years, they may have gone through the September 11s and the GFC, etc., but they're not really comparable to this situation. I suppose everyone's learning um, as they go, even the most senior managers in all these organisations. Mm. I suppose the relationship has been as good as it could be. We've uh, received as much communication as we possibly could. There's, when there's nothing to say, I know some of my colleagues get get upset that there's, there's no news. When there's nothing to say, there's very little for the company to tell us. So again, that's part of the, that's one of those things that people get angry about. 
when I was talking before about there's lots of things to be angry about is the lack of information and the lack of news. But it's just unfortunately the nature of this particular situation we're in that occasionally we just have to wait it out and wait for some new information and wait for government policy to change. And then when there is information, the the company's very timely in providing it to us when they do actually have something material to tell us. So in terms of the the day-to-day mechanics of it, we have uh, reasonably comprehensive FAQs that have been published and we have our stand-down letter, which describes exactly what, situ- what the situation is we're under. And we all just continue to monitor the situation and hope for the best that things begin to improve and the vaccine rollout continues and look towards a future where there'll be a bit more stability. Mm, Yeah, you can't really write an email going, "Uh, good morning, guys, we're all still screwed. Next update next week. (laughs) (laughs) Check back in with us next week when it's still custard. If there's no information, there's nothing really you can tell the pilot group. So what do you think the biggest struggle is for those that have to manage this this pilot surplus in airlines? Yeah, I was thinking about this when when I was reading the terminology when the, the CEOs and every everyone like that. The senior managers had to first stand the three quarters of the workforce down. And the terminology was, this is incredibly hard decision. But I even remember at the time myself thinking, it's not really a hard decision. Even I acknowledged that it was the only possible course of action. It doesn't take a PhD in in mathematics to realize when all your revenue has evaporated, you can't pay a workforce that has no work to do indefinitely. I think that initial standing down of the bulk of the workforce was, this is going to sound nuts, but perhaps an easy decision to make because it wasn't, mm. it was really out of the hands of, out of any, out of anyone's hands. I think the most difficult decisions have come after that as in, okay, we've, we've shut everything down. We've stopped the hemorrhaging of money as much as we can. Now, how do we restart things? I think that's been the most difficult um, part of the journey. And as it's evolved, the decisions have probably become more and more difficult because the targets have constantly shifted and the goalposts have constantly shifted with border closures constantly opening and reopening and all and reclosing and all of that. How the pilot group gets stood back up or how any group within the organisation gets stood back up or indeed some people have, in effect, been made redundant throughout the course of this journey. That's been where the difficult decisions have come. And having not been privy to any of those conversations, I'm not sure how they decide on these sorts of things, but ultimately it has to be for the good of the company because if the company fails, then we all fail. But if the company survives, then at least some of us have a job, whether it be in one, two, three, four years from now. So I suppose mm. that's the way I look at it. It's a, um, a glass half full, if you will. Mm. And through the same time, I guess for a pilot, you go, okay, we're all out of a job for a bit. And then the aftermath starts it starts to happen and you start to see what the new world looks like. I can absolutely say for me, it was easy to accept. It was relatively easy to accept being stood down compared to how difficult it's been to accept the new reality. And what do you think the biggest struggle for a pilot is through this period of everything starting back up again? Yeah, exactly what you said. It was, And particularly as we were in such disbelief when we were first stood down and the vast majority of us 
acknowledge that was absolutely the right thing to do. But yes, it's been this journey back to to the profession that's been the most difficult, particularly for international operators like myself mm. and many others, that we've got no no clear date on the horizon mm. where we may fly internationally again. And of course, it keeps getting pushed further and further into the future. So I suppose it's that uncertainty that's the biggest struggle. The financial uh, burden on many, many pilots, mm. having gone from what was a, a well-paid career into into anything and everything, into what it, basically whatever you could, whatever job you could get. The financial mm. uncertainty is very difficult for everyone. And that loss of loss of identity about being a pilot. And I was thinking about it previously, it was a huge part of my identity telling everyone that, that I was a pilot. And it's, of course, it's the mature thing to do would be to rebuild my personality, not having my identity based on being a pilot. That would be the mature and smart yep. thing to do. But of course, I haven't. All I've done is um, gone from telling people what it's like to be a pilot to telling people what it's like to be stood down as a pilot and how one day I'll get back to being a pilot. That's, like I say, very grateful to be in the position that I'm in, that I have that hope on the horizon. You have framed that incredibly well. I was one of those people that I'm not, I don't find my identity on a pilot. I'm above that, blah, blah, blah. I realize that's all rubbish. Yeah, and absolutely. What I honestly thought I was, that was my identity, but I realized it, it totally was. And it's probably not the most healthy thing to have your job as an identity, but the reality is that it was. And it is for most people, I think, in aviation. Yeah, in aviation especially. And what it did is it spoke for me. All I had to do was say I'm a pilot. Then everyone assumed all these things about me and I didn't have to spend weeks months in a relationship with them for them to understand who i was and and, and who, what i was capable of that's a big part of it i think for me that's a huge part of what i lost and then you're saying and now i just identify as a stood down pilot um, yeah yeah exactly so i'm just carrying the same baggage just in a different format and i have an additional story to tell now because i've, <laughs> I've been stood down yeah, there's a lot of things to being a pilot but i think that inherent possibly narcissism about you immediately get an audience when you tell someone you're a pilot and that sense of self-worth that you put on it uh, is very difficult to shake. Why do you want to go back to flying even though there could be another pandemic around the corner and you could be put through this experience again? Yeah, it's interesting and I've had this conversation with with a few colleagues before. Why do we continue to stay in this profession and put up with all of this sort of stuff? And even throughout the space of my career, I've been through, in my working career, I've been through a GFC, a SARS, and now coronavirus. And that's in a reasonably short career span. So there will certainly be more things like this. And it's a difficult thing to define why we stay in it. It's simply put, because we love it. We love being around aeroplanes and something intellectually satisfying about the the rapid decision making and the technical knowledge and all of that sort of stuff in addition to all the stuff we said before about it being just a part of our identity so i think that's that's the reason you keep going back to it i think when i wrote this question down it surprised myself I'm like why am i going back to this <laughs> yeah know, this, this yeah, doesn't make what? any logical sense <laughs> i should be going back to university <laughs> why are you going back to it then i don't know just I think a combination of lots of things that you've already explained. It's another story, just a, a combination of things, including I want to be a pilot. I really enjoy that. It's not my number one ultimate goal for everything, but I, I love that. And if I can get paid to do it, then why not? I think that's yeah. a really good thing. 
Yeah, it fulfills a lot of criteria emotionally, technically, not to mention financially. And it's you get to do things and see things that some people never get to do. Being on the 787, I get paid to fly to Hawaii. And then two days later, I'll be in Tokyo. And then next week, I'll be in Bali or Ho Chi Minh or something like that. To see parts of the world like that and to get paid to do it, thats I guess that's part of the icing on the cake, one of the perks of the job that gives it a bit of that, a bit of the glamour that gives it that X factor as far as careers go. But I think mm. the real basis of being in aviation is enjoying being around aeroplanes because even if I didn't have, even if I lost my job with Jetstar and didn't have that, the glamour of being a 787 pilot, I would still go back and I'd fly Warriors or 172s and do something in aviation. Mm. And you you said something interesting, which was that the job met a lot of our needs, the need for finance, for fulfillment, identity, something to do, intellectual engagement. And I think the struggle for lots of pilots is that when they lose their job, it's really difficult to get all of those needs met, especially in that combination. And you can absolutely find a new life and find those things, but it's probably going to be impossible to find it all in the, the one endeavor, i.e. your job. You're going to have to start multiple new pursuits, hobbies, relationships, whatever it is to, or not relationships, but communities perhaps yeah. to have those same needs met. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's only, there's only 24 hours in the day. So there's only so many of them that you can pack in concurrently like you do in mm-hmm. aviation. Otherwise, you're doing them consecutively, which uh, starts to mm-hmm. uh, burn a hole in your your time budget. And then you just run mm-hmm. out of hours in the day to do them. We're just going to zoom sideways to automation, artificial intelligence. Okay. So you were in machine learning before machine learning was a thing. And now machine learning is a thing. And we're seeing artificial intelligence being used in experimental autopilots, in military autopilots, things like that. And we have companies such as Reliable Robotics flying around sub 10 seat cargo aircraft, for want of a better way of explaining, autonomously with a remote pilot. In your opinion, how far away is that? How far away before your job is impacted? Any thoughts on automation? It's one of those things I try not to think too much about, particularly while I'm stood down from work. The thought of being stood down again permanently and replaced by a computer, I suppose the answer is I don't know. And I suppose no one knows when we will have autonomous passenger aircraft. But I suppose the way I would look at it is I don't think large-scale passenger aircraft will become autonomous. I think remotely piloted, yes, the idea of complete autonomy is some way off when you still have the fact that Aeroplanes are designed, built and maintained by humans, so they're always going to have faults. At the moment, you always need some method of override, whether that's a pilot in the cockpit or remotely piloted. So I think, yeah, they're two different things, the idea of completely autonomous and remotely piloted, where there's not actually someone sitting in the flight deck. And I think the idea of single pilot is interesting because personally I don't see it as any sort of advantage because you still have all the the disadvantages of having to roster a pilot to put in the flight deck of an aircraft and in terms in percentage terms pilots are not a huge cost to an airline compared to the rest of the cost so by halving your pilot group in percentage terms is not a massive gain for 
an airline, but it's a massive decrement to their risk management in terms of what happens on a flight deck. So if you still have people making decisions and doing things, your greatest line of defence is the second pilot in the flight deck. So I think single pilot, to me, doesn't really make sense in a um, passenger aircraft context. It's either two pilots or it goes to remotely piloted because if you go to remotely piloted, you get all the advantages of not having to roster pilots on that flight deck. You get the commercial impetus. So that's how I think it will play out, whether that plays out in the next five years or 50 years. I have no idea, but right. that would, I guess that would be the way I would predict it will play out. It will go from two to zero and it'll go remotely piloted instead of two to one. Maybe there'll be a transition phase where there's it's able to be completely remotely piloted, but they'll put one pilot on the flight deck just to monitor those sorts of things as a transition. But yeah, yeah, I, I see it going completely remote. And so having been what you've been through in the last 15 months, if this happened in the next, say, say it happened in 20 years, where you'll still be probably fit and willing to fly, what will you do? And what do you think the airline should do to make it an effective change? I'd, I'd probably ring up ANZ and see what they've got going. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I don't know. My, my thought process hasn't gotten that far ahead. It'll be such a paradigm shift in the whole aviation world that it'll involve massive shakeups. So it'll be impossible to predict. And in 20 years, there'll be new jobs that will have formed. Some people may not have to exit the industry. Some people with technical backgrounds may go sideways in the industry as opposed to exiting completely. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that you feel like this is a piece of the story that needs to be said? What about your emotional struggle throughout all of this? Your situation was similar to most people. Did you go through the same thing as what I've described or uh, did you handle it much more like a, a mature adult might? Definitely not. I recently reflected on the last 15 months and the stages I went through was naivety, denial, then just doom and gloom, like we're all going to die kind of thing. This is the end of aviation as we know it. I'll, I'll lose my job forever. And then... It was anger. I was yeah. definitely just super frustrated with everything that happened. And I think after that it was just sadness. And then it was escape. I tried to do everything I could to end a new job or create my own business or where the podcast came from in yeah. a very long-winded way. But I just really tried to find something that met the idea of value that I had of myself in my head and flying an airplane was no longer that thing because it wasn't there anymore yeah. and so that was another step in the process and then it was acceptance and I'll be really honest with you it's only now that I can see the the sort of the resolution to all of this but on the distant horizon that I'm finally accepting it and would I have come to that place of acceptance if I hadn't seen an end I don't even know which is the worrying thing I think for me but Definitely. I've had to go, okay, this is my place of acceptance now. And I'm super lucky. I'm actually flying probably once a week. Right now in Vietnam, there's like literally had four flights in our airline yesterday. But the whole thing used to have 100 plus sectors per day. But accepting, okay, this is what's happening. And it's not like I didn't know this would be the situation in Vietnam because it hasn't really changed in the last 12 months. So there's a lot of peace with that comes with acceptance. And it means you can move forward and uh, really deal with your inadequacies and 
the things you need to get on with in in moving ahead with life so mm. i think those are the stages that uh, i personally went through yeah and it's a story that will be told at some point not now well, thanks very much nick we really appreciate you sharing with us your story and your thoughts and your feelings throughout this whole process yeah no problem at all thanks for having me Thanks very much for listening to another episode of Deep Sky. I hope you have enjoyed the conversation with Nick just as much as I did. If you would like to further engage with this podcast, with any of the concepts raised, or would like to discuss how artificial intelligence may affect your career or business, then please send me a message on LinkedIn or send me an email at samuel.chandra01 at gmail.com. The links to the above are in the show notes. This is Deep Sky. Deep Sky.